I'm Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is legal affairs reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald, Michaela Whitbourne. Welcome to the show, Michaela Whitbourne. Thank you for joining us on Minimal today. It's a pleasure to be here, Jim. Thank you, thank you. And we should give some full disclosure. Uh, one of the very few appearances I've had in a major newspaper was thanks to the hard work of yourself reporting on the Whigs Black Lives Matter uh, situation from June 2022. I, I don't know if I've ever thanked you for that coverage, but it was a very favourable article. Oh, well, I mean, it was favourable because you were doing great work, Jim. I mean, I would never just write a puff piece. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, it was great to meet you all, and I really loved that photo that Walter Peters took of you all as well. It's very moody, beautiful photo. I love it too. It's such a cracking shot. Uh, for those yeah. of you who haven't seen it, I think I've, I use it as a number of my wallpapers on social media. I think it's my Twitter wallpaper. I love it so much. It's so cool. Not, not least for the fact that it makes me look a little bit more important than I'm probably entitled to appear. As such. Oh, Jim, the classic self-deprecation has begun. I have begun. to, I have to, I have to. That's how I uh. ease my way into it. Um, <laughs> so we, I wanted, really wanted to have you on um, my new show because I remember we had you as a guest on the Wigs and it was always an intriguing path that you took uh, professionally and I wanted to sort of see if we could explore that a little bit more. Uh, when we began our last interview, Emmanuel went through a bit of your history and you graduated from law school, top of the class. Oh, sure. I mean, like, I was up there. Yeah. I think I was the first in the class, but I was up there. The yeah. modesty kicks in again. <laughs> yes, yes. But what was interesting about it was that it was clear that you would have had your, your pick of where you would end up professionally uh, in, in the practice of the law. And yet here you are today, uh, one of the most well-known uh, most well-respected journalists on the cir- on the on the court uh, circuit. How did you make that transition? Well, first of all, probably a better question: well, Why did you make that decision instead of pursuing the law? Yeah, that's a really big question. I guess when I was at law school, I didn't have it firmly in my heart that I was going to be a practicing lawyer. I was always really interested in writing and potentially being a journalist, um, but. You know, I was a pretty nervous, kind of shy sort of student. I didn't really know how I would go about either career path, really. Like, the thought of uh, working for the City Morning Herald really seemed to me like walking on the moon. I didn't know how I would do it. I didn't know anyone who was a journalist. Equally, I didn't know anyone who was a lawyer. And I was seeing a lot of students around me who were really confident and knew what they wanted and seemingly how to get it. And I just wasn't like that at all. I wasn't even tapped into you know, um, what you would do to get a clerkship or any of those kinds of things, which now seems kind of weird. I mean, it's not really particularly difficult to inform yourself if you want those things, you know, like there's a process to getting clerkship. But I was just sort of like, oh, I could never have those things. Despite being really sort of nerdy and very diligent about my studies, it just felt to me that I wasn't the kind of person who could have those things, which now seems to me like a very... um, surprising kind of logic but it helps me kind of empathize with the students now who are not really sure what they want to do with their life and their career and aren't really sure about how to go and get it i'm kind of more that sort of journalist as well now that i'm not kind of like beating down anyone's door but because i've been around long enough i kind of like know how to get things done i suppose while still being a pretty introverted sort of person um but to get back to your point I did sort of have this idea when I was at law school that I wanted to be a journalist. 
still, I didn't really know how to do it. I think at the time, um, the Sydney Morning Herald and papers like that weren't necessarily doing sort of trainee or cadet intakes every year. So I didn't really know how to get my foot in that door. At the same time, I was sort of curious about um, whether or not I sort of had it in me to be a lawyer. And I found the um, sort of business of studying law and sort of pulling it out judgments and seeing how the law works really exciting and interesting. Um, so, but I was still pretty unsure about what to do. In the end, what happened is that I graduated. I did my practical legal training in the ABC's legal department. Mm. Um, at the same time, I was looking around for work, um, ended up applying to work both for a judge in the Court of Appeal for a year, as well as to work in a big corporate law firm because I was seeing that's what students around me were doing. And I was mm. sort of like, right, is this how I you know, become a lawyer? I don't really know, but this is what other people seem to be doing. So that's ultimately what I ended up doing after this year of studying at the College of Law and uh, working at the ABC and its legal department, which incidentally was also awesome. And I got to work on this uh, long-running defamation trial at the time, which involved a Four Corners broadcast and a cult leader that was suing the ABC for defamation. Wow. Uh, so that was amazing. And I got to see all these top barristers in court, um, including Brett Walker, who was mm. acting for the ABC. And this was amazing. I had never seen anything like this, like the theatre of it, uh, the preparation that goes into a big case like that. Um, and it didn't really occur to me, but of course, years later, that would... Uh, you know, become quite significant. I now report on defamation cases all the time yeah. and that it's kind of been a thread through my career. So I guess that's a really long-winded way of seeing, saying that it seems like I had this kind of plan about what my career would look like. I didn't really. I started off, uh, as I say, uh, working in a firm and working for a judge. So I got both of the things that I applied for and did them kind of one after the other. Then I had um, sort of met some people while I was working in the courts who went on to work in newspapers at the Financial Review. So while I was working in the law firm, I actually applied to do a traineeship at the Financial Review. And that was my stepping stone that really into journalism right. um, and that's how that started so it seems like I had a plan, there was no plan no, it right. worked out kind of okay for me. It, they, yeah. they did but can you explain to me during your times as a student yeah. um, how were you able to uh, keep the foot on the pedal so to speak mm. uh, on the studies uh, despite the question mark around where it was going to lead um, well, I think that I'm inherently quite a nerdy little creature. And okay. I, I had this kind of feeling at the time that my social life wasn't as, uh, you know, developed or sort of broad as it could have been. Okay. And it, it appeared to me that if I wasn't going to invest in that side of my life, I really had no excuse not to be really good at my study. It's like, what else was going on, Michaela? Like, you've got to knuckle down and do something if you're not going to be a social butterfly or, you know, like joining the drama club at uni or you know, joining a political party, which I never did. No, right. Um, so it was just sort of like, right, well, you should knuckle down and really sort of master this. Like, what else are you doing? Sure. Um, Were you quite so young? I kind of like that. Yeah, so I went straight from school into uni right. and I was kind of like, I guess I did find it a little bit overwhelming, but I was also really grateful to be there. And I had some really awesome teachers who I still know now, of course, like um, David Rolfe, who's one of the leading experts in Australia, on defamation law, so I now consider him my friend, which is not something that I ever would have said either. Like, I was kind of too shy to imagine that I would ever be friends with anyone who lectured me. You know, yeah. these are, you know, big, important people. Um, but, yeah, I think that's really it. It's not like I really had, um, you know, I just realised that I was 
that there wasn't really anything else going on that I should really apply myself and see what happened if I really, um, you know, was very diligent about my study. Yeah, and I do enough. think that's a good thing. But also I think that it's... um. I kind of had the advantage of being able to do that. You know, I can see how many doors are opened now because of um, the opportunities that I had with my education. But a lot of people, for a variety of reasons, don't have that chance. And that can affect you all throughout your life in different ways. So I was just really lucky that I didn't have a lot of distractions at that time. I was able just to focus on my study and getting good grades was really important to allowing me to do things that I wanted to do later. Absolutely. If I wasn't sure what they were at the time. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, it's it's not it's it's a it's a storied path really. It's not just, you know, straight from law school straight into the, you know, Sydney Morning Herald. As you said, it, it's it's paved along the way with some law experience and some media mm. experience and training. But where did the love of writing come from? Um, I think it probably came from my mum who worked in a lot of libraries when I was a kid and would bring home just like truckloads of books for me to read so I was a reader before I was a writer which is pretty standard Um, and I just really immersed myself in words I would love reading the paper on the weekend as well to me I could kind of see it as a a formula which is not to downplay sort of the effort that goes into writing things in newspapers but you can kind of pick them apart and understand how it is that they're put together and I think um, without really appreciating that's what I was doing um, I was studying how newspapers work really and then when I came to be a trainee in a newspaper it didn't really seem strange to me that I was now in that position where I was just sort of following um that particular template I suppose Mm. um so I think it was just that that I was just always had it um instilled in me that reading was a great thing it's an immersive thing it sort of allows you to travel and to put yourself in other people's shoes and to explore so many concepts and ideas and places and that was fun. Like, there was nothing about it that was work for me, which is lucky. Mm. Um, conversely, I'm not very good with um, numbers and scientific concepts in a kind of natural way. Um, so I was just lucky that I really enjoyed it. And from there came this desire to kind of try my hand at writing myself. And so was there some sort of uh, dissemination of the uh, journalistic or investigative journalistic style prior to your time at the Australian Financial Review that helped you fit in seamlessly? Or was what, what's the level of training that's involved as soon as you step through the door? Um, you know, a lot of it still is really just training by doing. So um, we did have some um, training sessions in, you know, shorthand and things like that, which I must have been I'm not very good at because quite early on I stopped going to shorthand classes sure. to focus on writing stories, which is a bit of a regret of mine. But, okay. you know, with recording and being able to type quite quickly, it doesn't really hold me back too much. Sure. Um, we also had some sort of rudimentary classes in, you know, what, what a news story looks like and um, what sort of gets people in. You know, you always need to understand that people have to have a reason for caring about a story, whether or not it's, um, you know, that it directly affects them or, you know, it affects something else that they're interested in. You know, people aren't just interested in concepts devoid of any context, I suppose. Um, But mostly it's just doing, you know, like quite early on, I was just told, you know, you've got to do a story about this. You've got to do a story about petrol prices or something like that. I didn't even have a car, you know, like all these things were, you know, pretty (laughs) mysterious to me. Um, But I still remember like also at the time thinking, wow, some of these journalists are doing, you know, like three stories a day. How do they do this? How, where have they got their contacts from? Like, how does this all work? And then, after a time you're doing it as well after thinking I just cannot like how does someone write three stories in a day 
how are they just picking, you know, picking up the phone and calling someone and they get a comment in five minutes? Um, but of course, you know, the longer you're around, um, the easier that becomes over time. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to convince someone that it's going to be easier later when they're just starting in their career, obviously. Um, and it is kind of as scary as it sounds, especially if you're a bit of an introvert, sure. you just start cold calling people when um, you weren't a journalist yesterday and today you are one and you're just calling someone and saying, I'm from the Financial Review, can you tell me about this? Yeah. Um, but you realise that more often than not, people will speak to you. Of course, they're more reluctant to speak to you if you're asking them about something they just don't want to talk about or that's quite controversial. So, so what there's always that. that. Of course, of course. And I, I imagine since you've started, well, you know, you've been on um, the, the, the court circuit in New South Wales River for a long time now. Uh, mm. When you started that beat, I imagine, uh, I'm only imagining that the phone calls were less well received when you started making them? Um, yeah, that's interesting, actually. Like, I think when you actually uh, work on a round like courts, you don't need to make as many phone calls because typically you're sort of sitting in the courtroom, you're observing, you're relying on documents, you're applying to the court for, you know, a statement of claim, a defence, that sort of thing. So actually it's one of those awesome rounds where you don't really need to talk to people as often as you do in other areas. It is true, of course, that in any round you probably do need to ask people for help sometimes or, you know, seek clarification or ask them for a tip about a particular case that's coming up or whatever else. And it is easier um, to get your foot in that door when people know you. But I think I kind of had the advantage at the time that I started doing that kind of work of being around long enough that I just sort of existed in that space and people already knew who I was and they were less uh, suspicious of me. Yeah. But when you're writing about an area that you don't usually write about, then yes, people are naturally <laughs> like, who is this person? You know, what's what's this story about? Why should I speak to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, during your time, you, well, there are some very famous investigative reporters uh, in Sydney, old school, you know, uh, Chris Masters uh, for one. And I, and I know, yes. I know that you've had the the, uh, the luck and the fortune to uh, be mentored by a few of them. Can you can you ra- can you rattle can you name drop for us and just let us know what are you know uh, what are, what are some of the lessons that maybe Kate McClymouth or someone uh, of that stature has bestowed on you in your journey. <laughs> Yeah, so Kate McClymont at the Sydney Morning Herald and Neil Chenoweth at the AFR are probably um, two of my sort of most treasured mentors. I don't know if they even see themselves in that way, you know. I think they're really collegiate and wonderful to everyone and just appreciate that everyone has to start their career not knowing that much. Um, Both of them are also, you know, um, incredibly well-versed in covering proceedings at ICAC, which is um, where I got to see both of them in action, really. And what I reflected on recently is that they were always really very supportive and kind to me, even though they were reporting on ICAC when it was like a newly established body. I turn up like decades later as this like kid who doesn't really know anything yet, like, oh, here I am at ICAC writing my first story. And they don't, they never act like, you know, listen, I know a lot more about this than you. In (laughs) fact, it was always like, you know, you've got a lot to offer. Like, we think you're going to be you know, you've written a great story today or whatever else. Um, I think they were both really good at showing me um, different models of what it is to be a journalist. By that I mean, I think there's a very popular concept of a journalist as being a very aggressive, foot-in-the-door person, um, not necessarily a very polite person, which is kind of strange, really, because yeah. it's much easier um, to elicit information from people when you are just a kind and empathetic um, a person who listens um Uh, and a person who's really thorough in their approach to researching a topic before they ask people questions. So, you know, like giving a topic the respect it deserves. Um, So I think 
they kind of taught me that it's actually okay to be a quiet journalist um, and a journalist who's very focused on the detail, um, focused on documents, um, you know, kind of putting together a paper trail before you even think about whether or not you're going to write a story. Mm. Um, and that, in fact, people who sort of bluster in and haven't done all that work and are um, quite aggressive probably don't get the results and it's not the kind of person that um, I necessarily wanted to be as a journalist anyway. Yeah, what, an so, yeah. what an education, though. I mean, <clears throat> it, it, just to, to know that... Um, those who have broken stories that have really redefined Sydney politically oh. are allowing you a pathway beside them and not uh, uh, not thinking of you as treading on their coattails. Um, exactly. I mean, that's yes. just so amazing. It's, it's, it's quite heartening to hear. And it's interesting to get that uh, perspective of um, Kate McClymont, who I, I don't obviously don't know, but I'd love to have a chat to one day. Mm. Um, being polite, the polite journal obviously goes against the archetype. What, is it arresting to be overly polite to someone who you know will be probably portrayed negatively? Like, does, is, that the, is that the formula or without giving away too many of your tricks? Like, what does it that's do? That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess a cynic might say that that is a way to sort of get someone off balance, but I don't really think that's what it's about. I think it's about just giving, um, you know, a, a topic and a subject uh, respect, and that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to agree or say something flattering about them, but there's no real need to be, um, you know, uh, rude or horrible about it for minute one. You're sort of, you're amassing information, you're sort of compiling particular facts from various sources, documents, people that you've spoken to, then you're putting these, um, you know, all this information to a person saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking is happening here or these are conclusions that might be drawn from this information. You know, I'm putting this to you. What do you have to say about that? You know, there's no actual need to be rude about this. People might be really unhappy um, that you're examining a particular, you know, business deal or whatever it is involving them. Mm. Um, but you don't really ever need, ever need to sort of lose your cool or be abusive about that. In yeah. fact, I think you kind of lose control of... Um, yourself in the story if you're doing that yeah yeah it's such an uh, a romantic um idea the job that you do and and you know i can tell from the tone in your voice that you absolutely love it um is it like you ever see that movie state of play yes is that what it's like yes. is it just you know uh, fast-paced there's no one looking over your shoulder except you know you've got to submit to these deadlines and it's interesting i mean i would say the longer i'm in it the less i think about it in romantic <laughs> terms at all <laughs> Um, but that's just because it is, is it a job? It is a job like any other and it is very stressful. And you can realize, you know, when you have a little bit of time away from it, how much, um, the pressure really pervades your life every day. Like you're always worried about the next deadline or whether or not you've missed a particular story or you should have been working on this or whether or not the phone's going to ring at, you know, 6am on a Saturday or whatever. And you should really be writing something even though you wanted to have a day off. Sure. Whatever. Yeah. But yes. It is, I think in many ways, it is still a really interesting and exciting job. I mean, there's also a lot of flexibility in it, you know, like every day, if I'm not, you know, doing live reporting as I'm doing a lot of at the moment, you know, in terms of COVID reporting and things like that, you're just sort of looking around for a potential story and then offering that up to the to the editors, the story gods. Um, and that involves a lot of flexibility and freedom and just sort of, um, not necessarily being in a newsroom at all. Um, even pre-COVID, I wasn't necessarily going into the office at all. I was, you know, in the court or roving around. Um, so in that sense, I guess it is kind of a romantic job that um, 
you're not really tethered to the usual sort of nine to five yeah. rules of working. It's not it's not an office job per se, even if it may be a desk job. You know, a lot of it is just really very solitary and involves just sitting down and reading things and writing, obviously. I mean, that's not really a surprise to anyone. Yeah. Um, and really, it's quite a lone wolf kind of job as well. You know, like, you know, sometimes journalists do team up and work on things together, but it's it can be quite difficult Um melding two different styles or, um, you know, necessarily knowing what another journalist is, what their approach will be to a story. It can be easier just to take control of it yourself. And in most cases, you probably will just write a story by yourself, depending on the size of it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You've, as you mentioned, grown up with a love of words, a love of language and a love of storytelling, you know, thanks to mm. the, the influence of your mother. Um, mm. Working in a job now for uh, as long as you have, your job is storytelling. Uh, ha, ha, do you still have a passion for storytelling, for writing? Yeah, I do. Um, I think it's kind of, I think I've changed a little bit in the way I approach it. When I was at the Financial Review, and I accept it, it also has a different audience, so I probably had some scope for doing this. I think I was very focused on sort of the language and kind of like little. I think showing off would be putting it too high, but sort of enjoying sort of crafting that language and putting in maybe little nods to the audience that were a little bit cheeky or funny. Um, I don't think I do that anymore. I think I feel that my job now is to be very kind of straight down the line, make sure that people understand a topic, um, that everything's, you know, rigorously factual. Not that I wasn't worried about that before, but I feel like my job is done if people walk away from a story that may be about an area of law that they've never encountered before or don't know very well. And they really sort of get the basics of it. So I was like, oh, right, like that defence in defamation law, I'd never heard of that before and now I kind of get it. Or like, oh, I didn't know that's how that court worked or... So I think about it in terms of if I can help people understand something that's actually kind of like weird and niche, mm. then I've done a good job. So it's like it's kind of like it's a story, but it's also more of um, a, a guide to a per- particular part of the world. So I'm like a tour guide, I guess. Yeah, that's a really yeah. interesting way of looking at it. When you have to define an area of the law in layman's terms, do mm. you, uh, with your extensive legal knowledge, do you feel like you're confident that you've uh, mastered that so- singularly on your own or do you run that past your old um, lecturers to see or do you have friends or is there a legal department? How does it come about to say, no, this isn't simplified enough or this isn't um, – uh, correct legally how, how is yeah. that decisions made so it's not it's not talking to our internal legal department they kind of focus more on if there's um sort of a legal risk you know like oh perhaps we, we might have defamed this person maybe you can't say that or if you did maybe you need to ask them some more comments or whatever mm. so they're focused on risk um when it comes to whether or not i think i've explained uh, a particular area of law i have the advantage working where i do of being able to pick up the phone and ask pretty much any expert i guess subject to their like availability yeah desire to speak to me um, about a particular topic. Um, I don't usually then sort of go back to them and say, hey, do you think I've explained it well enough? But I would like to think um, if I hadn't that they would tell me. You know, I'm always open to feedback. Um, I've definitely had discussions with academics where they've been like, oh, maybe like maybe it could be like framed this way or like what do you think about saying it like this? So I've had a look at this draft bill. I think maybe it's this is what it's doing. You know, there might be other readings available. So it's like that really. Like I don't necessarily say to people you know as kind of like a market sounding hey do you think after reading this that you understand this topic is there anything better that i could do here sure i kind of i sort of write every article as though i'm explaining it 
to myself. And I feel like if I uh, am now satisfied that I understand the topic, that I've done quite a good job after speaking to those experts. Yeah. I think that's an unduly sort of egocentric approach and I really should be asking other people, hey, do you understand this now or do I need to explain it even more? Yeah. Um, but then my stories also get edited, of course. Yes, and, yeah. Um, I, I don't usually have editors coming back and saying, hey, I really don't get that. Like, what does that mean? That's interesting. Um, anyway, I would like to think they would if they had a problem there. Well, of course. Anyway. Are you, do you ever read your work once it's gone out? Uh, I tend to know my work very well by the time it's gone out. Okay. I probably will have read every line multiple times and if there's any small tweak, you know, a moved comma, yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll clock it um, and I may be unhappy about it. Um, <laughs> But then I kind of, I try to walk away from it. Um, sometimes when you come back and read your work, because you need to like a year or two later, it can be really strange. Sometimes it's like, oh, that's great. Or it could be like, I really think I should have framed that better or phrased that better. And there are easy ways that I could have simplified that. But sometimes that's really not clear to you in the moment when you've got a deadline of an hour of or course. whatever it is. Of yes. course. Once the submission process is made, um, yep. is there any, you probably may not want to divulge this, but is there any <laughs> um, sort of, uh, do you, are you interested in numbers or things like that? Because it's almost like the pre-social media days, like you guys had an insight into that sort of um, hit that you get when you uh. submit work to the public and, and, and hope for a reaction. Do you subject yourself to that or are you too far gone in the game to be, to let it live on its own and you separate yourself entirely from the work and let it live? I think mostly I just let it live. Of course, like sometimes if I've written about a particularly sort of like technical or perhaps really significant um, policy legally that may have like a great social impact but hasn't um, got as many sort of eyeballs on it that day, that can be a bit like, oh, like what, what could I have done to make that story that's you know, interesting. even more readable, attract yeah. more attention. Maybe it was that it was lost in the news cycle because there were 10 other things happening. But, you know, ultimately I kind of know if a story, well, I, th- I hope I know if a story should actually be out there in the world. And then if it doesn't get quite the audience that uh, I think it warrants because it's an interesting area of the law or whatever, not because it's my work, I kind of can't really do anything more about that. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I just sort of write it. What will happen after that will happen. Yeah. Tell me about the future of journalism. Are you excited about it or is it quite frightening? Um, I think it's exciting, actually. I mean, I am not at all concerned about seeing um, new sort of business models popping up. I like seeing what the Daily Oz is doing. In fact, you know, they've got that presence on um, social media, on Instagram, where they sort of um, give you nuggets of the news, sort of little summaries of the news. Obviously, podcasting is big, and you could speak a lot more to that than I could. Not really. I don't think any of those things are bad. Okay, you couldn't imagine. Uh, man with successful podcast. <laughs> Thank, thanks to yours truly, though. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, like none of that concerns me. I thought it was awesome when um, the Saturday paper um, was found as this kind of new approach to writing about the news, like a weekly approach. Mm. And it doesn't really take anything away from um, day-to-day metro papers like The Herald or The Age. I don't think it does anyway. Mm. Um, Of course, the business model is changing. Um, We're always changing as well. That's okay. I don't really think there's going to be a point where um, news ceases to matter at all. But um, the way in which it's packaged up 
is going to keep on changing and that's that's okay yeah I mean the the court beat in particular you know the the, the adage is uh, justice must be done it must be seen to be done mm. and Primarily, I know court reports are published and uh, rulings are published, but it's really your work that's that's disseminated more. So, mm. uh, so you can imagine there's no uh, there's 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 no, there's no chance that there will be a uh, a drop off in court reportings in the in the in the near to short term future. I can imagine. I think that's right. I mean, I do. I am concerned sometimes that there's not as many uh, like pure legal reporters around as there used to be. Right. Um, so you know, there's not as many specialist legal reporters. There are quite niche um, legal publications uh, springing up. Like mm. you might be familiar with Loyally, um, which yeah. covers a lot of federal court proceedings, but not only federal court. Um, and that's kind of speaking to a. Um, I think chiefly like a corporate legal audience, you know, they'll give you details of the matter, including like which firm was acting for which side and which is the kind of details that we would never put in a mainstream court report. Sure. That's all great. But I certainly do want to see more mainstream legal and court reporting. I totally accept that, I, that you know, court reporting is not going to die, you know, like crimes and, uh, you know, people suing each other in the courts in any city in Australia are mm. like the bread and butter of news reporting anywhere. Yeah. Um, but I think that we could be doing even more. And I mean, we, the media in general, not any particular outlet. Yeah. So, yeah. I uh, just want to finish up with the with with your observations on someone who has uh, walked a similar path to you. They're about to graduate, um, and they're thinking about dabbling uh, in storytelling yeah. from from a from a similar perspective to you. What advice do you give them? Um, I would think don't assume like me that you know oh you know someone else will probably get that job or it's really you know I'd love to do that but look at the people doing that job they're really sort of you know they're so different to me it can it can absolutely be your career there are so many opportunities for you now whether or not you're starting working somewhere like the Daily Oz instead of a, a traditional uh, newspaper or uh, you know like working for uh, a media outlet that principally uses video or, you know, whatever. There are so many ways to get your foot in the door that are not uh, the very obvious players now. And I think it's a really exciting time to be working in this area. Um, And I just think that if you really want to be doing this, um, you know, start doing some of it yourself as well. I know this is the kind of like Pollyanna advice that I never wanted to hear when I was a a budding journalist, you know, like turn up to court and like write your own report and see where that takes you. But it is kind of like a good way to figure out if you even like doing this. You know, there's like a proportion of people who think that they really do like writing and would like to be a journalist, but when they have a crack at it, realise that actually they don't. They don't like the pressure of it. They don't like how quick the deadlines are. They prefer to really sort of sit down and pass a judgment or think about things in a lot more detail and maybe they prefer to work in policy or whatever else and spend a bit more time on it. But there's going to be another part of that audience who's, you know, in love with the idea of it, you know, sitting in a courtroom, feeling the adrenaline and excitement. Of course, a lot of that is now done online because of COVID. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a really exciting job to have. And part of that is making your own opportunities as much as that sounds a bit trite and silly. Um, but I think, you know, if you start writing things and pitching things to various outlets, that's a really good way to begin and to show your enthusiasm. Well, that's great advice, Michaela, and I really appreciate your time on the show because I know it's super busy, and I really hope that I never see my name in one of your publications. (laughs) 
I'm sure you won't. One time only. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, thanks so much, mate. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Pleasure, Jim.